0: listening to the Footprints of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ash Gartner. Today on Footprints, we welcome anti-violence campaigner Tarang Chawla. His leadership journey began under tragic circumstances, the murder of his sister Nikki in 2015 at the hands of her husband. Tarang began a crusade to end violence against women, founding Not One More Nikki. He's entered the space as a voice of solidarity, proving that men are a crucial part of not only ending family violence itself, but of raising awareness and calling out the issue. Terang, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Now, first of all, I do feel like I need to say thank you in a way for, for being somewhat of a leader and an ally in this space. A number of times that I've seen your tweets and your posts shared by my friends and my family members, I've actually lost count, to be honest. I really feel like your thoughts resonate with a lot of people. What has the feedback been like that you've received?
1: Well, firstly, thank you um, to you for telling me that. And thank you also to like your family and friends and everyone who does share the things that I've written and my advocacy work over the six and a half years now since Nikki's murder, the feedback has been mixed for me, right? Like on on the one hand is overwhelmingly positive responses, you know, particularly um, something that I'm conscious of as a man is that when I speak about these issues, people are perhaps more likely to listen. To a man speaking about it than they are to women and that's mm-hmm. you know particularly the burdens for women increase for those from particular backgrounds or particular walks of life you know like women of color migrant women have even more challenges than uh, you know other women so it's it's really complicated and there's an element of that that i'm always trying to be conscious of um and it's not my role to speak over anyone or speak for anyone it's really to help amplify and to explain and give solidarity with and alongside women who've been doing this work far before i um made any contributions there's also like criticism that one gets uh, and then online trolling behavior which I'm sure you and others and even listeners are familiar with that there's this seeming kind of trend online of people when they disagree with someone to say things online write things that Mm. they wouldn't say in real life that degree of anonymity and keyboard warrior so there is that and obviously that takes a toll on one's mental health But, I mean, the block button is handy, right? Like if someone's willing to, if someone's not willing to engage in a civil discourse, you know, disagreement is where we often lead to progress. You know, Mm -hmm. disagreement is often a site where we can um, entertain different possibilities and we can entertain different ideas and see different ways to make progress, you know, in any context, any kind of leadership context or any kind of workplace context, right? But I think that, if people are going to engage in a way where their sole motive is to disrespect the other person and the integrity of the other person as a human being, then, I mean, the the argument's already lost from their perspective as far as I'm concerned. You know, that's not the way that we make progress.
0: What has the feedback been like from men? Do you think they're receptive to some of the concepts that you're putting out there?
1: I think there's a growing trend where men are increasingly aware of not only the importance of these issues uh, for women but for themselves Mm. you know and so one of the ways that uh this has been approached by organizations that work primarily with men and and one of the things that i i support is ideas around masculinity and ideas around what it means to be a good man Mm. um where i sometimes differ is that i think it's very important to put those things in a way where we don't uh we don't shy away from the difficult conversations so what i mean by that is that when things are a feminist concept and, you know, feminism is an idea that women are equal to men, you know, and the equality between all sexes and genders, right? That's that's all it really means, right? Mm. Um, but it's such a loaded term still, yeah. in, you know, yeah. in 2021, it's still a loaded term, right? And so for me, it's like, let's take that load off it, but use the word. Like, let's not, you know, th- that word exists for a reason. Let's actually use it because I think that one of the things, particularly in the work that I do with younger men, they're already aware that these concepts exist. They've heard it, you know, they've seen it on, in you know, a Netflix show, you know, like they're, they're watching things that are far more progressive than some of us, you know, well into our 30s and beyond can think of because we weren't exposed to that. Certainly I wasn't growing up, you know, those concepts were not something that was talked about openly uh, in any setting really. So it's certainly been a shift in consciousness and particularly the response from men They're also aware of one thing, which is that the reason that I do this is so that other families don't go through what we did, you know, and and they sort of understand then that if the small things that they can do on a day-to-day level can result in changes so that women aren't being killed at the rate of one a week in their own home, you know, that then they kind of get their part in that. You know, so so it's about approaching men in a way that makes it tangible and real for them. You know, they can be good family men, they can be good leaders in workplaces, in communities, and they don't have to do an awful lot to get there. Like they don't need to dedicate their whole life to it, but being a good man is like an iterative process.
0: That's amazing. Let's go back to 2015. What can you tell me about that time of your life?
1: To be honest, it feels like a blur. You know, like I, it it, uh, one day sort of, blended into the next, which blended into the next week and and month and that entire year of 2015 because we went, after Nikki's murder, we had the sort of the immediate process of having to identify her, going through the court process, the coroner's court process, police and, and the courts, all of that, you know, like that kind of process happens. While you're also being kind of hounded by news media, you know, particularly like tabloid journalists who would just be in it for like a scoop or like the latest story. When Mm -hmm. for you, it's like your family. It's, you know, Nikki and I grew up uh, four years apart, so quite close, right? We lived in a small home growing up, so our bedrooms were next to each other. And it it was this kind of, it's like having the rug pulled out from under you. You know, like whether, yeah. you know, like I've met people that have had all kinds of experiences in life, like cancer diagnosis or a marriage relationship breakdown just after the birth of a child. And so there's all of, there's all of these scenarios in life where everyone's got them where like the, the rugs pulled out from underneath you. So that's what it felt like. And it, and, and what made it worse, what made it feel so much more acute was that there's this attention on you and your family while that's happening. There's media attention, there's attention from friends, uh, well-meaning as, as it was. Sometimes you're just not equipped to process all of it and to yeah. deal with, you know, the mental health effects of that. And then the longer-lasting impacts, you know, PTSD from the things that you have to see, you know, like true crime on Netflix is is like, you know, very popular genre. It's like, It was actually one of the things that my sister and I used to watch, like SVU and Law and Order. I was like, oh, we loved all that stuff watching it together. But it's strange when it becomes part of your actual life because it's not like television at all.
0: How do you process receiving that kind of news? That's something I can't even fathom.
1: I think for me in the moment I I looked at mum and dad and I saw how how much it affected them in the moment and how lost they looked and there was this kind of a, a switch flicking internally. Like in the back of my brain was this thing like, You have to step up. You have to step up now to be able to address this issue that's affecting your family. This this real-life situation is happening in front of you. This is the time when you have to uh, do something. And I didn't know. like I had no no concept of what was the right thing to do. But I'm very lucky and Nikki was very lucky that we were raised by very, very good parents, right, and we were always loved. So for, for us, I think having that meant, yeah. Okay. I, I think I know what to do in hindsight. I don't think I had any idea. I was just putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and that's why I said earlier, it's, it was a blur, you know, that entire year after Nikki died was a blur and in its own way, campaigning and advocacy work became a coping mechanism, somewhere to put the anger, to channel the stress, the anxiety, the grief, uh, and feelings of helplessness and despair into something that felt tangible.
0: Now the theme of this season's podcast is leadership through adversity and you've obviously faced challenges that no one should ever have to but You've, you've just touched on it there, but how did you find a way to turn this tragedy into something that can make such a huge difference in the lives of others?
1: I think it felt like it was the only option. It wasn't like I set out knowing with a future plan of like, this is what I have to do five years from now. I mean, it's only been six and a half years since Nikki was murdered. It, it's been at times it feels like an eternity and then at other times it feels like yesterday. And I think for me it was a case of at the time you don't even put it into context as adversity, right? You don't have the words around it. It's just the rug's been pulled out from underneath you and you're in this kind of shell coping mechanism. And so for me it was I have to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was, like, it was like right back down to basics. It was like get up in the morning, make your bed. If you tick that box off, you've already achieved something for the day. Like it was that reductive, you know? And it was like, try to sleep, make sure you eat, go outside for, you know, 10 minutes. It's a bit like living in lockdown almost, where you have to tell yourself to do the things to maintain some semblance of mental wellness and mental, you know, positive mental health. So it was like that while you're going through something. The thing that I found especially in the moment, and I've reflected on since, is that the world didn't change, but my world changed, right? My family's world changed. And so with the 60 plus women that are killed by an intimate partner a year in Australia, the woman is murdered or killed. And then the lives of everyone around that woman, whether she was a mother, a daughter, you know, a a sibling, all of the people around her, their lives change forever. Their world changes forever. That woman is gone. But for everyone else, they eventually kind of move on, right? So for me, it was about finding a way to do something so that this experience of my world changing so acutely was not so universal, you know, because it's happening in Australia. It's not as bad as other countries, but that doesn't make it better in my view. You know, like no. we have to do what we have to do here, right? So that's the kind of thing that, that drove the decision to do something in the first place was that we can't turn a blind eye to this when it's happening, you know, and the shame is that it often takes personal experience for someone to kind of pull their socks up and do something about something, you know, Mm -hmm. when actually it's down to all of us to play our role, particularly men, you know, and there's so many good men now, like particularly footballers and others who are like leading the way in terms of talking about these things on their social media, when they get a, you know, TV appearance and they're doing an interview, they'll talk about these important social issues, whether they're domestic and family violence, um, LGBTQI rights or or other issues around mental health. They're showing this model that's kind of different from historically what we've taught men to be. And it's got such positive impacts across all of society. And I can and I can only hope that we see more of it. You know, and it doesn't necessarily take personal experience of adversity to see that kind of leadership so when I see like footballers and others step up I'm always eternally grateful.
0: Do you think it was an issue that you were aware of before Nikki was murdered do you do you think you had the level of awareness of the frequency of domestic violence and and just how many people are impacted by it day to day?
1: Yeah this is the thing that that makes it a bit tricky is that I did as a person I did I had I had knowledge of it because I um you know, way back when feels like forever ago, I spent a long time at university. And one of the things I studied, uh, I did a law degree and an arts degree. And I also added a degree, an additional degree in gender studies, uh, just out of interest. Like I just, I took a a subject in like my first year as an elective. And a lot of the ideas around masculinity and and femininity and what being a man meant were uh, something that I'd thought about growing up because I wasn't particularly good at sport. I didn't fit into... This rubric of what it meant to be a bloke right and particularly like growing up from a migrant background and living in predominantly like anglo areas i was like the only brown kid in a lot of classes right so i felt like i didn't belong or i felt like i was someone different from all the other kids what i didn't know is that a lot of those kids were feeling some of the same pressures as i was to conform and they didn't feel like they met that ideal as well And so when I started studying this stuff at university from a theoretical perspective, naturally I got more interested in it and I got interested in, you know, the the statistics and how it affected men, women and others. And so I had an understanding of it at a theoretical level. I just never expected or thought that it would touch so close to home.
0: Yeah. Did you ever have a moment where you had your doubts or thought, I can't do this?
1: About the work now?
0: About the work, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. I've had a few, probably a few breakdowns or close to. Um, yeah, you kind of you reflect and, and think like, you know, what what am I capable of? And something that um, Osher Ginsburg said in a completely different context, and we had this conversation about it. I spoke to him about it because he was asked about his plant based eating, right? Mm-hmm. And he's never publicly said. I I think um, he never. I think he's never publicly said I'm a vegan, right? But he does. He does live like a plant-based lifestyle and he's very, you know, actively like promoting that and speaking about the benefits of it. And then he, you know, he was photographed somewhere and someone took issue with it, you know, with him and they said, oh, this is hypocritical, or you're not standing up for what you believe in. And he said, I do what I can. And those words from Osher have stuck with me. And we spoke about it because I, I think of it in every context that like, I do what I can, whether it's leadership or whatever, it's not this idea of perfection. It's this idea of doing what you're capable of to the utmost extent. And I think there's this shift in leadership, which I'm really grateful to see happening, is that we don't expect perfection from our leaders anymore. We expect things that are actually tangible, like accountability and honesty and empathy and these qualities that if you exhibit... People will, you know, have better working relationships with you. They'll trust you more. Um, you'll get better results, I think. Because perfection is just like if you keep striving from it, for it, Sorry, you won't necessarily get to it, right? And this is something that I've had to, have to challenge in myself. You know, like growing up is this idea that I had to always do better and be better. So for me it's like do I, do I keep going with it and can I keep doing it? Yeah, I can. And the reason I can is that I do what I can that I, I, I think I started at thinking I need to do everything possible, you know, at the expense of my own health, not sleeping, at the expense of personal and intimate relationships. I was horrible to be around because all I did was work, you know, mm. like 18 hours a day. And then the rest of the time, like I slept like four hours a night. Um, so it was kind of this thing where it was like do as I say, not as I do, because I wasn't looking after myself. You know, you can't, you can't, sustainably function for that amount of time you know three years on five hours of sleep a night you will eventually just need to check yourself into somewhere and so for me it didn't get that bad but i definitely i was burnt out and exhausted and you don't actually make progress and i think that we have to shift away from that concept you know when we talk about like hustling and that kind of perfectionist culture of like just working all the time i don't think it actually benefits anyone. I don't think we actually get results. I think we've taught ourselves over time that that's the way to work. But it's actually like you look at other countries that have like four day work weeks and other things, they get better results because people actually feel connected to their colleagues appropriately, to their families, their communities. So it's this kind of more holistic way of looking at how we work and how we live life.
0: Have you had mentors along the way that you have looked to for guidance and for support?
1: I look at, Particularly my mum is a very strong role model, you know, because I was raised in a household with strong values of social justice, human rights and feminism without any of those words being ever expressed, which I think is one of the most beautiful ways to raise children uh, and to bring up kids in the world is to impart in them the ideas without having to put them into like little boxes and frameworks. When they're older, they'll understand and piece together, as I've done, as many people do. Watching my parents kind of the way that they raised me with like an equal division of labour between mum and dad, not strict ideas of gender roles and dad had to be a particular way and mum had to be a particular way. All of that sort of created in me this interest that has sparked a lot of the work that I do and a lot of my outlook in life. You know, and I think that one of the things is that it's so important to have mentors and they don't necessarily need to be professional mentors. They can be mentors around the qualities that you want to exhibit in leadership, not necessarily the role that they currently occupy. Okay. Particularly if we look at you know, examples of corporate and political culture in Australia and some of the conversations we're having around women's safety in the workplace, whether it's the allegations of, of sexual assault and rape in Parliament House, If we look at the men in parliament, for instance, they're not beacons of leadership that we should aspire to necessarily. They occupy the positions, but their qualities aren't the ones that we want to have. So for me, it's about having mentors from all walks of life. You know, I think that's something that I'd love to say to people is that your mentor doesn't need to be doing the role that you want to get to. Your mentor has to be someone that can help you cultivate the qualities that will make you get there. And the other thing to that point around mentoring is just the benefit and importance of having sponsors, you know, so having people in the workplace who will say your name when a project comes up, who will vouch for you when you're not in the room. And I think that's so important particularly for women and for men who want women to succeed, in, you know, and, and be part of the campaign for gender equality is to think of the competent, capable, women in your teams what roles you know can they occupy in the future and then volunteer their names to your bosses you know volunteer them that like we have to break down that old boys club culture so that everyone succeeds
0: i love that now have there been traits that you've taken from those people uh, that you look to as mentors that i guess you've also tried to mirror or encompass in your own leadership yeah so for
1: me i think about this a lot you know and i think about the importance of certain qualities and traits of leadership and the one thing that keeps coming back to me the one thing that i always think is so important is the importance of integrity you know because i think that like leaders who have integrity ultimately end up encompassing all of the other qualities that make favorable leaders You know, and there's a lot of like buzzwords thrown around. But if we talk about real genuine qualities, say accountability, respect, kindness, empathy, people with integrity ultimately end up encompassing all of those things. You know, to me, integrity is paramount. Because if you're someone with integrity, you say and do what you're going to do. You're accountable. You treat people with respect because you're a person of integrity. You know, it's it's hard to find figures in any walk of life, regardless of who they are, who've been people with integrity, who aren't also people that we hold up as beacons of strong leadership. You know, Nelson Mandela, others, there's so many examples of people who had such a strong sense of integrity about themselves. And they had so many other traits as well. So for me, it's about developing relationships with people. And there's so many strong women I know that help keep me accountable. You know, they help me to become the best version of myself, because they're able to give me a lens to view the world that I don't have, you know, because I wasn't raised in it. So they, they're they able to teach me things uh, from a different perspective. And it's not so foreign that I'm not gonna get it, but it's just different enough that it makes me, you know, sit up and notice, and then kind of reflect and go, how can I be better?
0: That's pretty incredible. That I- That is very incredible. Uh- what does leadership mean to you?
1: I always find this really hard to answer. I, I, I you know I always feel like maybe I can give you a dictionary definition or something. <laughs> I, I even now I'm struggling after you've asked me. But to me, leadership is it's very straightforward. It's very simple, and it's something that I learned very early on, you know before I embarked on any of the work I do now in like I think one of my first jobs. And it's something that my manager said to me then talking about his manager and he just said, being a manager doesn't make you a leader. And I just, that's always stuck with me. That leadership is about doing what is the right thing to do in the situation, whether it's professionally, personally, it's not about just towing a line or, you know, it's, yeah, so for me, it's it's really about just doing what's right, you know, stepping up and doing what's right for yourself and others around you with conviction and standing for something, you know, and that can be, and that can be across any aspect of life. You know, some of the best leaders I've ever seen are ones who work in their local communities. We don't read about them every day. They don't have platforms. But they do incredible work because they're standing up for what they believe in and what's important. You know, and I think that's the crux of leadership. It's not just like bossing people around. And I think that that's where leadership sometimes gets a bad rap because we think of leadership as people who micromanage, you know, and we mm. we call, you know, managers in you know, leaders, like team leaders at work. And it's like they're not really leading anyone. You know, if anything, they're just kind of ticking a few boxes and and micromanaging people. And I think that's the antithesis of effective leadership.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. Now, what are some of the things that you do day to day, whether they be routines or habits so that you can continue to be successful in your pursuits, achieve your goals?
1: I think during lockdown, for me during lockdown, what's been so crucial is uh, looking after my mental health you know, and and, and positive mental health. So day to day I do the things that I need to do to recharge, you know, so whether it's trashy television, whether it's, uh, you know, a phone call with a friend or some time spent, you know, in a healthy way on social media watching things that I like and actually, you know, get me interested and hyped up to do good things rather than just mindlessly scrolling and being like, oh, everyone else has such a better life. And, you know, buying into that fiction that is social media and Instagram kind of little square tiles of what the world's meant to be like. So I think I I try to do more of that and probably more of that than I used to, and I find that doing that actually makes me more effective.
0: Yeah. You've mentioned that we have seen this shift in people's awareness and behaviours around toxic, controlling or abusive behaviours and calling it out. There is obviously still a long way to go. I guess what's next for you in in terms of what you want to achieve?
1: Uh, I'd love to see the introduction of respectful relationships and consent education to schools across Australia. You know, to me that is such a crucial part of addressing this issue. We've seen private schools around um, Melbourne pull out of programs because of potential backlash by parents and, you know, the school community. And, And I think that we have to find ways to lean into really difficult conversations. We have to find ways to lean into conversations around these issues before they become crisis situations. You know, like I think it's, As difficult as it seems, I think it's easier to have a conversation with boys and young men about consent, about respectful relationships before one or two out of a cohort become convicted criminals. You know, because the statistics around, like, violence against women is we'll always talk about it in this view of, like, this lens of 60-plus women are killed by an intimate partner, one in four women will experience uh, emotional abuse or physical violence. One in three women will experience emotional abuse from a current or former partner. But we don't think if one in three women are experiencing it, how many men are committing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's always it's always alarming, isn't it, that like a woman can always name if she's not the woman directly impacted, she can always name someone who's been sexually assaulted or abused or catcalled or discriminated against, right?
0: Yeah. But
1: so few men can name perpetrators of any kind of abuse or disrespect towards women you know not not least of all themselves like i couldn't possibly do it and i think that you know and i'm not saying this to men from a holier than thou position i'm saying that i am standing with you that we're all part of it we all we've all been programmed a certain way and so we're relearning it and so for me rather than having to get adults to relearn and redo the wiring is start young and start teaching boys about concepts that i missed out on at school you know, because I think it makes for better relationships, you know, that people have not only with others growing up, but with themselves.
0: I think that is an incredible next step in all of this. Absolutely. I guess it is also important to recognise and I guess honour as well, Nikki, in all of this. How do you like to remember Nikki and what do you want others to know about her?
1: Yeah, wow. I, I remember her as a as people remember their siblings, you know, as an annoying little sister who (laughs) for the life of me would just be like, she's so annoying. Like I talk about (laughs) her in the present tense, but like you have relationships with your siblings so she's so annoying. Like I remember, you know, like walking into her bedroom and wanting to talk to her and she'd be like, get out. Like just that kind of, you know, that standard (laughs) brother, sister, elder brother, younger sister dynamic. And we occupied that like perfectly. And so I remember her by those things. What's been fascinating for me, because she was a performing artist and choreographer and dancer, is hearing from people who collaborated and worked with her about what she was like in that professional setting. You know, as someone who doesn't work in that at all, it's been really interesting, you know, over many years, hearing those stories and hearing those examples, because it's like seeing another side to a human being, you know. But for me, she's just like, my sister and that's the thing about like whether someone has any kind of skills that play out in any platform publicly is that if you you know if you're related to someone they're just your annoying brother sister mom dad whatever they're you know uh, that's all I think about and that's what I hold on to because they're the human moments for me they're the kind of real tangible things they're the ones that I miss the most but for her I miss that she loved to create and she had that opportunity taken from her. You know, that wasn't the most important thing to me. Like it's beautiful having this body of her work to look back on and to reflect and to watch in moments where I want to feel closer. But really I just missed the little things, you know, like watching a TV show together or drinking a cup of tea or going for a walk, just really mundane, everyday things. It is
0: also important I guess that we mentioned that for anyone listening to this podcast that if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic or family violence you can contact one respect which is one 737 732 safesteps.org.au is also another great resource or domestic violence New South Wales and of course we're both in lockdown in Melbourne at the mm. moment as is much of Australia and I think it is important for people to know that they can leave their home to seek support and safety if they're also experiencing these things. But Trang, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great chatting with you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Footprints of Leadership podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow on Spotify to be notified of our next episode. You can find more on our socials at Footprints Podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Giraffe Consulting. If your business is ready for a new perspective, visit giraffeconsulting.com.au.